I'm Martine Halverson-Taylor. And I'm Curtis Schaefer. And this is Sacred and Profane. Every year, in Bhutan's Pobjika Valley, locals climb the hill to Gongteng Monastery. And they're not the only ones. School kids in costumes are joined by Bhutanese from other valleys, Buddhist clergy and tourists from all over the world. Even Bhutan's royal family are all there to welcome another very special group of travelers, the endangered black-necked crane. The cranes fly in from Tibet, or they summer in the high Himalayas to spend their winters in this more hospitable valley in Bhutan. The Pobjika Valley has been welcoming them for many, many years. For so long, in fact, that the cranes seem to use the monastery itself as a landmark on their journey. Each year, they circle above this massive Buddhist complex several times before they glide down into the valley, landing among farms and wetlands. The cranes are one of the many attractions that draw hundreds of thousands of tourists to Bhutan annually, despite the high cost of the country's tourist visa, which is $200 per day. Bhutan shares a border with the Tibetan Autonomous Region of China, and like its northern neighbor, Bhutan is often painted as a kind of Shangri-La. In the towering Himalayas, between South Asia and China, a legendary kingdom of peace and tranquility. Tourists are often looking for a paradise. It's a deeply religious country where people live in balance with nature, untouched by the problems of more worldly, industrialized nations. A land that is rich not in gold or earthly wealth, but in the soul of its people where ritual and prayer mark all aspects of daily life and labor. But of course, no country is Shangri-La. And that's why we went to Bhutan, to experience firsthand how a country with lofty Buddhist ideals and a global reputation to match responds to global and local challenges. We traveled with a group of colleagues from many scholarly disciplines. You'll hear from some of them in this episode. Our group was exploring how climate change is affecting religious sites all over the world and how people adapt these often ancient sites to meet new challenges. Bhutan is one of many countries actively working to flourish in a changing world and the only one whose democratically elected government is so thoroughly integrated with Buddhist tradition and ways of life. But as you'll hear, even with the best of intentions, development is complicated. Bhutan's new east-west highway brings more tourists to see the cranes in Pobjika, but it also brings cheap goods that can undercut the local farmers there and plastics that end up in the very wetlands Bhutan is trying to protect. We've been called Shangri-La, even the last Shangri-La. But let me tell you right off the bat, we are not Shangri-La. My country is not one big monastery populated with happy monks. The reality is that there are barely 700,000 of us sandwiched between two of the most populated countries on Earth, China and India. 
That's the former Prime Minister of Bhutan, Tsering Tobke, speaking in a TED Talk. The reality is that we are a small, underdeveloped country doing our best to survive. But we're doing okay. We are surviving. In fact, we are thriving, balancing economic growth carefully with social development, environmental sustainability, and cultural preservation, all within the framework of good governance. We call this holistic approach to development gross national happiness, or GNH. Gross national happiness is meant to serve as an alternative to the way that many countries measure their development using gross domestic product, which prioritizes constant economic growth. And gross national happiness is just one way that Bhutan is unusual. Bhutan is one of only a handful of countries in the world that can claim to be carbon negative. That is to say, Bhutan's forests draw down more carbon than Bhutanese people emit. And part of that is due to a unique clause in their constitution. So I'm Sonam Chodin. I work with the government. Uh, I work with the Department of Forest and Park Services to be specific. And to be more specific, I work with the Watan Wetlands Program. So I'm a strong advocate for wetland conservation in Bhutan. Sonam has always been interested in the natural world. She told us her nickname is Lem Lem. It's hard to translate, but it roughly means wet. It comes from her childhood love of nature, water in particular. I, um, I come from Wangdi. It's an arid area. When the first monsoon uh, rain hits um, Wangdi, the hot big soil, it's a hot place, and uh, in the summer months, then you can smell, you know, the, the, I cannot describe the smell, but it's a feeling. And then you see the, the plants sprout. That's, that was always my, like, uh, a positive thing. She says that Bhutan's mandate to conserve its forests has had a profound effect on the country. Bhutan's forests cover plenty of villages, temples, and farms. They're used by hunters, foragers, farmers, and loggers. All Bhutanese is a trustee of the environment, which doesn't mean that only the government is the trustee of the environment. It's all citizens of Bhutan. So whether you're part of the government, you're not part of the government, or you know, you're a businessman, or you're a farmer, you, know, you, you are a trustee of the environment. That in itself is very significant. Sonam also thinks religion does play a part in the protections Bhutan has built into the constitution. I, I would say so, because uh, the Bhutanese, uh, the, the Buddhist is uh, Buddhist philosophy, as you say, it's a way of living, right? So there's a lot of respect for nature. There's a lot of reverence to the spirits. Traveling throughout Bhutan, it's hard to miss the shrines that dot the landscape. Some are dedicated to what we might call nature spirits, figures that predate the arrival of Buddhism in Bhutan. Many people believe that in order to build a house, for example, you would need to consult with local spirits to make sure that the building is not interfering with their habitat. And that belief is not in conflict with Buddhist teachings. To do no harm is a cornerstone of Buddhist ethics. You know, these are the basic philosophies. Oh, we've always been taught that 
the land is not owned by us or you cannot own our land. It, it has to be gifted somehow. So we always lived with nature. I'm sure when you've traveled, you might have seen that there are big trees next to the temples and all. Yeah. I think there's a lot of reverence to nature and that there is certain kind of spirit there. There's something, you know, something that you cannot see with your eyes. And that's what we saw playing out in the Pubjica Valley with the famous black-necked cranes. Secular and religious ideas about conservation and protection of nature, often working hand in hand. When we went to the Gangtang Monastery in December 2019, the cranes had already settled in for the winter in the valley below, and most of the tourists had gone home. The monastery was taking advantage of the off-season to do some much-needed restorations. But even at a distance, black-necked cranes are hard to miss. With an eight-foot wingspan and striking black patches on pure white wings and necks. These black-necked cranes are just some of several thousand still left in the wild. Their habitat and migration are under threat as wetlands are drained and power lines go up. Down in the valley, we were able to see a complicated dance as Pobjika navigates the needs of local farmers, Buddhist monasteries, tourists, and, of course, the cranes themselves. These aren't just questions that affect Pobjika. The whole country has been wrestling with how to balance cultural preservation, growth, and the environment for decades. So we're in the Popchika Valley, uh, which is famous because it's a sanctuary for black-neck cranes. Uh, cranes uh, come here for the winter. They come from Tibet, where they were for the summer. And a major tourism industry has developed in the valley because of the crane sanctuary. So it's quite a wealthy valley. This is our first day here. But the, in, especially in Bhutan, they started uh, considering crane as important only from 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. And 90s. Until that time, people never, yeah, realized or people never recognized as indigenous species of how important. Only from 1990s, then they, before they had just to grazing land and nothing in winter. Yeah. Yeah. That's our guide, Saring. He showed us how the cranes don't just stay in the wetlands near the river. They also venture up the valley's slopes into farmers' fields. But they like farming, right? Yeah, like farming. It was in winter since we don't grow much of crops, so that farming also, they sometimes they even use as a roosting. Once they finish with the harvesting of turnips and whatever they are growing in the field now, so maybe another like two weeks, so they will finish with the harvest and they will till the field and they will uh, just uh, waited for other next season, summer season. So until that time, they even come. Sometime in the morning, they, they're full of cranes will come here and they like they eat, they feed on those leftover seeds, and roots, like potatoes. So this is the perfect place because you have both farming and then you have the wetland. Yes, yes. For the cranes. Yes, and you have the, and you have this farming season adjusted to your migratory path. Yes, mm-hmm. this, especially this valley has been really protected, just protected from them. Uh, for them, yeah. Right. And number has been also increasing. Yeah. Yes. The government has worked hard to make sure that other protections for the cranes also benefit 
or at least don't hurt, local farmers. For example, the government invested in burying power lines in the valley. That means cranes won't fly into live electrical wires, and it also means more reliable power in the valley after bad weather. A win-win. Absolutely. More controversially, farmers in the valley are not supposed to regularly use chemical pesticides, which can accumulate in the water and harm cranes and other wildlife. But Bhutan shares a long border with India, where farmers can use pesticides, which makes their crops much cheaper. But ever since Bhutan is open to India, we started, you know, we import lots of vegetables and fruits, which are chemical, but important. Recently, like two years, three years back, government uh, found that they have been using too much of pesticide, in especially cauliflower and uh, chili, green chili. So Bhutanese cannot live without chili, especially in winter. So government have banned importing of chili and cauliflower, some other vegetables. The idea is to give local farmers using more labor-intensive methods a chance to compete. But people are still importing illegally. They never realize why government. Uh, so yeah, some people even end up paying like huge amount. So if anyone founds bringing chili, so they find like 166 times 10, they have to pay the fine. As we've said before, no place is a Shangri-La. Even in a place where many are committed to protecting the environment, people gravitate toward convenience. As much as the Bhutanese government tries to promote slow development and to protect traditional material culture, local makers often compete with cheaper imports of food and clothing from India. I have to say, I've been to Bhutan before, and that was something I noticed right away on this trip. You see imported snacks and drinks everywhere. And that means there is also a lot more plastic waste, especially in the waterways. It was so striking to me, I asked some Bhutanese colleagues who had joined us for part of the trip if they had noticed it. Sonam Nyenda said that had been a huge change as Bhutan opened up over the last decades. I remember my dad telling me about the uh, first introduction to plastic products. And my dad uh, used to say that we have experts uh, in producing our own like goods, like uh, utensils at home, like uh, buckets, wooden buckets and buckets made from bamboos. And then uh, people who make these products would like bring it to, to the other Zonkoks, other districts to, to exchange with food, uh, for example, like red rice and you know, dried chilies. And then later, when they went to the, the bordering towns, so when they went there, they found the plastic bucket and then like, of course, that excited their, their thoughts. It's light and then easier to carry. And then after that, like modernization started and then the modernization in Bhutan started like very fast. My uh, assumption is that we didn't get a, a good time to the process of thinking about the plastic and the, the challenges that we would face. And then suddenly there's like huge like plastic products like there's like uh, plastic plates, mugs, and then like plastic like chips, and then all those food items that is packed in a uh, plastics. We also spoke with other people who observed that development has come at a cost. On our way out to Objika, we stopped for the night at the home of Ashi Kunsang Chudan. She grew up in rural Bhutan and says that she's also seen a change since the government put in a new east-west road, 
a major engineering achievement that meant cutting across and sometimes through Bhutan's steep mountains. We've been told by lamas not to make big structures and to destroy the environment. That's how Longchen wanted it and leave it that way, that uh, the way it is and not to make a road, not to build anything like this. So that's what that's what's keeping it. But I think they will soon be some people and if they get some Chinese money or things like this are happening. That's a happening. And I don't know for how long it'll be just left the forest. In the last few years, trees had been cut down and stones taken from around an important local site associated with a famous Buddhist poet, Longchenpa. We are a stone-staffed area because the government's protection of the environment is so strong that, you know, we live in the forest, but it's very difficult to get wood. It's very difficult to get stones. So when people start rebuilding and repairing their homes, they just took it out of necessity. And I think uh, uh, all the people talk about it with regret, but the people who uh, took it and used it, they are happy that they had some stones. So it all disappeared. Yes, uh, and uh, you know, it was necessity, no other way. And uh, I, with what, whether they feel blessed using wood or whether they felt guilty about desecrating a holy place, I don't know. All of this to say, conservation is complicated. It takes constant work. There was a moment on our trip that seemed to sum up what the government was trying to do, to harness tradition, religion, and the outside money that development could bring. Our group visited a much smaller temple down in the Pobchika Valley, one that doesn't get nearly the attention that the Gangteng Temple does with its annual crane festival. This temple is surrounded by farmland, So as the caretaker monks explained the temple's religious art, their neighbor was using a chainsaw to cut new fence posts just outside, and the sound echoed through the valley. Our colleague, Ariana Maki, noticed something unusual in the freshly restored frescoes. Normally, in Buddhist art, you might see peacocks repeated as a motif around bodhisattvas or Buddhist saints, but not in this temple the mural over there of Sepakmayabhyam. If you look directly to the left of the main figure, there are two in the mural there. The birds she's pointing out are, in fact, black-necked cranes. Which is is interesting, because often we will see maybe peacock or or white cranes or something, but here it's the local chung-chung. You know, it's nice to see. Our guide translated the caretaker monk's explanation. So like uh, he's narrating, main source of the upgrading temple is a crane. And because of the black neck crane, many of the foreigners, they are coming. And on top of that, some are the followers of the Longchen. So they are visiting here, but he narrated the story. And because of that, you get little donations. And with the help of grains, there's a main. But uh, because of the grain, they are getting help to upgrade the temples for the donations. 
Only time will tell if all these efforts are successful, if the cranes can thrive, and if the Bhutanese can keep thriving along with them as global heating continues. If communities like Pobjika can continue balancing the many forces at play so that tourism, wildlife, and tradition are not in competition. But in that moment, it seemed possible. This is the final episode of our third season of Sacred and Profane. We'll be back soon with a whole new one that will explore how religion shapes how we think about and respond to climate change here in the U.S. Stay tuned. Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Special thanks to our colleagues Ariana Maki, Matthew Bertner, John Cannon, Willis Jenkins, Karen McLathery, Erica Scher, and Devin Zuckerman. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find out more about our work at religionlab.virginia.edu or by following us on Twitter at The Religion Lab. <laughs>